Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. This is OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I have two very special co-hosts today, Guy Adami, my co-host from On The Tape Podcast. Guy Adami, welcome. Yo. Oh, come on, man. All right. And Jeff Richards from GGV Capital. Last time we had him on On The Tape, we interviewed him. This time he is going to be a co-host of this conversation. So I wanted to get the three of us back together on OK Computer because a lot has happened since Jeff joined us, Guy, in early February. The markets then were in a bit of a free fall. They ended up going a bit lower here. And right now it feels like from a sentiment standpoint, we're in the exact opposite place two months later. So we wanted to get Jeff's take on that. We also want to get his take on what's going on in private markets, what the lag is here. Jeff, welcome to OK Computer. Thanks for having me, guys. And Jeff, listen, before we get started, what do they call it when you don't see things? It's a audio medium, the podcast, right? You don't see, it's not a visual medium. Is that right? Some of us have a face for radio is what they usually say. Yeah. So that brings me to my next point there, Jeff. Are you a fan of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young by any chance? Wouldn't be in my top 10, but yes. That's a negative ghost rider. Well, one of their great albums was Deja Vu. And one of the songs on that album was Almost Cut My Hair. And I'm staring at you, dude. And if I didn't know any better, you just gave yourself some righteous haircut. Is that true? Can you speak to that, please? A little touch up. I learned to cut my own hair when I was 12 years old and carried that forward well into my marriage until we bought our current home. And my wife finally threw down the gauntlet and said, no more. You're not cutting your hair in our bathroom anymore. We're done. You're going to the barber. So I spend $10 every few weeks at my local barbershop. Well, it looks like about a $10 haircut here. <laughs> Guy, I thought you were going to go, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. That's what we're kind of doing here this week on OK Computer. Guy, when you welcomed Jeff to the pod a couple months ago, you congratulated him on his alma mater's defeat on the hard court of your Georgetown Hoyas. When was the last time, Jeff, that Dartmouth beat Georgetown in hoops. That is probably the only time. And our only claim to fame really is that we were in the final four and I believe it was 1942. So it's, it's been a while. Guy, you remember. I do remember. I actually was a senior in college that year. But listen, I know we want to talk markets and stuff. I get it. But the St. Peter story was unbelievable. And they ran into a juggernaut in the form of North Carolina. But when you watch a team like that play, that must make you feel really good. It's so cool. I actually got to go to the games last week. I went and saw Gonzaga, Duke, and I'll tell you that Duke team is loaded. They came out to play in that game here in San Francisco, that first game, and you could just see that they have the potential to win it all. But yeah, the feeling of the underdog, the talent level, Duke is stacked with McDonald's All-Americans. These teams are loaded. And then you got these guys that are working their ass off, probably didn't get recruited by many teams at all. And so to see them play that well is awesome. But I watched that game and it's tough because if they don't get hot early, 
eventually talent and size wins out and that game sort of went according. They were cold from the get-go. All right, let's do that thing. We're going to talk tech in particular. That's what we do here on OK Computer. And just, you know, stick around after we get through all our sports talk and tech talk. My co-host Katie Stanton of Moxie Ventures and I sit down with Dromira Herrera from Reach Capital. We talk about her young but storied career in VC and how she is now very focused on Web3. All right, let's talk about the NASDAQ here, Jeff, because one of the things that we talked about in early February, you and I know each other from Twitter. You are a former operator, but invested in private tech for the last, what, 15 years or so. And you have some really good commentary on public markets here. And I think it's really this combination of seeing the forest for the trees, taking a longer term time horizon and applying some of the things that work really well for you in private markets and thinking about it in public markets. But here we are now, the NASDAQ, which was down 22.5% at one point in late February, that was from its all-time highs in late November, is now only down 6.5%. And the S&P 500, which was down, I think, close to 15% at its lows, is down only 3%. When you consider all of these macro factors, and I know you're not so focused on those, but it really feels like in one quarter here, we've had a whole cycle play out. I'm just curious your take on that in is the public markets the right lens to be thinking about what's going to happen in tech investing, both public and private, over the balance of 2022? I would imagine heart surgeons get into trouble when they try to become dentists. And I think it's hard for folks in my role to comment on macro things like geopolitical issues, interest rates, inflation. I live it and breathe it just like you guys do, and I can guess what's going to happen. But as you and Gavin talked about last week, some of the smartest people in the world didn't see this inflation coming. And so it's hard for me to think that I would have seen it coming. And so the biggest thing in our business that I think I try to share with folks on Twitter is we always say illiquidity is a feature, not a bug. We back these companies when they have 5, 10, 15, 20 people, in many cases, no revenue. And we get to see them grow over a five to 10 year period and then go public. And one of the biggest dislocations that we see is when they go public, the really good ones are often vastly underestimated by public shareholders and analysts. Because a couple of things, one, they don't know the management team. Management team's new to Wall Street and proving themselves. And two, they don't really know the story of the business. In many cases, people who bought at the IPO have a one hour lunch to decide whether to buy a five or $10 million allocation. It isn't like they've done years of research. And then what you see happen over time, over the next two to three years post that company being public, they build a following, they build relationships, they build folks that really start to understand the business model. And in many cases, if they deliver on their results, you see those numbers go up. You saw that with Twilio. You saw it with Okta. You saw it with RingCentral. You're seeing it now with Snowflake. And I think we're going to see a similar scenario happen with the classes of 2020 and 21 in the tech IPO market, most of which are down. The average IPO from last year is down, I don't know, 30 40%. And obviously, cloud in general has gotten pounded. But I really just think if you can take that long-term horizon as an average investor, tune out a little bit of what's happening with inflation geopolitical issues, if you can withstand the punishment in your portfolio over the long run, you're going to make a lot of money betting on companies that have great fundamental businesses that are in huge categories that are growing. You guys have been doing this as long or longer than I have. If you wind back the clock 10 years ago, a company went public, you didn't see its growth rate accelerate. And now you've got some of the biggest tech platforms in the world in Azure at Microsoft, AWS at Amazon, and GCP at Google the growth rates are actually accelerating. These are massive businesses doing tens of billions of dollars in revenue. When people say to me, oh, it's like the dot-com bubble, I'm like, "Mm, back then you didn't have companies doing tens of billions in revenue accelerating their growth rate into global TAM. So I just have been encouraging folks to, if you like a high quality name when it went down a few weeks ago or over the last few months, 
add to your position, be comfortable you may still lose money, and then be willing to ride it out and hold for the long run. Yeah, you just mentioned Gavin. So last week, Guy and I sat down with Gavin Baker of Atreides Management on on the tape, and we had a really wide-ranging conversation. And we started macro, and then we started micro, and we met in the middle. A lot of things that was interesting. He mentioned to us that he's obsessed with the 52-week lows list. And it was interesting because he's obviously a growth investor. He likes to think about value, and he almost needs to see it come to him in a way. And there was an interesting exchange that you guys had on Twitter, Gavin and Jeff, Earlier today, Gavin tweeted, so many stocks up more than 50% from their lows, down more than 50% from their highs, and it sure feels like March, April 2020. No one believes the rally, but important differences led by tightening today versus historic QE in March, April of 2020. I thought that was really interesting. You weighed in and you said, I find the fascination with all-time highs interesting. If you were buying then, painful, but you simply lost value, less painful, unless we change tax policy and everyone gets whacked. All right, listen, I see what you're doing there. You're taking a shot at this new Biden budget here, but your point is, unless you're buying at the highs, who gives a shit? And it goes back to time horizon. It goes back to what you think long-term growth prospects are. I'll give you an example. So I was buying CrowdStrike back in March of 2020, and I got down in the 30s, I believe. And it peaked last year at about 280. 290, it dropped down to 180, and now it's back at 220. If you panicked and said, Well, gosh, I was buying it at 280 and I sold it at 180, it's back to 220. If you look at the fundamentals on that business, it's hard not to be bullish about that company over the long run. Fantastic CEO, great moat, great business, super high net dollar retention, great free cash flow. I just don't know who we're catering to when we speak to the all time high. Is it the Robin Hood trader audience that was buying NFTs and stocks at all-time highs last summer? Because a lot of people are sitting on positions, even when you look at companies like a Twilio or a Zoom that are off 50, 60, 70%, they're still way up from where they went public. They're still way up from where you would have been buying them two or three years ago. So if you're an investor that follows my philosophy of buying great companies early in their cycle as a public company and holding them for five to 10 years, you've lost some value in the last 12 months. It's painful but you're still up over the long run. And so I always try to think about this concept of, are you a trader? Or are you an investor? I'm an investor. When I put money into a private company, I know I'm going to be in that company for seven to 10 years at least. I really don't have much of a choice. I don't get to trade it. And so I really never look at my public positions as things that I'm trading either. I look at them as things that I'm owning. A company called GitLab, which I believe is one of the core companies in the cloud infrastructure space that you want to own. Snowflake, GitLab, HashiCorp, a few others. And I started buying it in the 50s and it went all the way down to 33. And I looked at myself when I hit 33 and said, Jesus, you need to load up. Well, by the end of that week, it was at back up north of 50. Will it go back down to 33 again? It might. I'd love to own more. I'm not buying more right now. If you can withstand the gyrations and the volatility over the long run, those all-time highs are just markers. Look at the stock price of Amazon. How many times did it come down from its all-time high? But man, you're glad if you'd ever sold it. Your Twitter game is extraordinarily strong. It feels to me like it's getting better each and every day, Jeff. That's just me. Well, it's because I'm learning from you guys. That's what I was going to say. I mean, it's clear you've been watching us. I'm curious, what are you guys telling folks around you that are asking you for investment advice? I would argue this is the most volatile period I've seen in the last decade since the great financial crisis with the combination of inflation rates and Russia. I was telling somebody Russia kind of reminds me of 9-11, but it's way more serious and involves a lot more in terms of geopolitics than that did. So what are you telling folks? Well, it's interesting. Jeff Mackey, who was on Fast Money in the Halcyon days, the early days, somebody asked him that question, Jeff, what position are you taking 
And he said the fetal position. And I think that was one of the great responses in the history of the show. But when you ask a question like that, you have to understand, and I know you know this, but when you do it every single night, the market has a way of both humbling and humiliating me specifically on a day-to-day basis. It's remarkable. Again, all the things that have taken place over the last month, month and a half, and we've seen the NASDAQ rally 2,500 points, I think, since March 4th or something. It's pretty remarkable when you think about the backdrop of everything that's going on. So quite frankly, to answer that question, we try not to be dogmatic, but you also have to have a level of consistency in your thought. And you try to marry those two, Dan. I don't know what your thoughts are. I think fetal position makes it. No, here's the thing. And I think this goes back to that tweet from Gavin in a way. What's different about this spring versus the spring of 2020 is that Congress and the Treasury were hitting the economy. And that's not even to talk about global economy with central banks and the rest of the fiscal stimulus with trillions and trillions of dollars. And what was the first thing that was going to react to that was risk assets what's the most liquid one. And it was the stock market. And when Gavin said in that tweet, people still don't believe it right now, just like they didn't believe it in April or May of 2020. The feedback loop is really the hard thing, but they kept on hitting it. They kept on jawboying it. What's really interesting about now, two years later here with what perceives to be runaway inflation because of that very policy is that they are going to hit inflation expectations, or they're going to hit current inflation really hard, and they're pulling away all of that stimulus. It's gone. Now they're raising interest rates. And so to me, Guy and I had this conversation a couple weeks ago before the market really found its footing. It was a couple days before the Fed meeting, which was going to be the first rate increase since 2019. And I said to Guy, they sold the rumor, and he's like, they sure as shit are going to buy the news. And that's what they've done. Now, here we are. And I guess at this point, Do we get unchanged on the year? And then we have to take another look, Jeff. I would say that as we go into Q2, we're going to get Q1 results, which maybe they're better than expected. Maybe that's it. And maybe Q2 guidance isn't as bad as people expected. And maybe the stock market is pricing in all of those rate hikes. But then the question is about recession. And your guess is as good as mine. We keep getting asked the question, what happens if there's a lasting peace in Russia, Ukraine? Well, sure as shit, you're going to see a lot of these inflationary pressures, which just exasperated the pandemic stuff, pull back in here. So it's a tough one. I just can't think of everything that's gone on, all the bastardization of our monetary policy that that three months was the reckoning. Guy, help me out here. Was that the chickens coming home to roost this last three months? That's it. After everything that we've gone through and people were yelling and screaming after the financial crisis about all the QE and we were going to have runaway inflation. It never came until now. For you REM fans out there from Athens, Georgia, Reckoning, by the way, great album. I want to say 86 or so, but I don't know. Maybe Jeff knows. I'll say this in terms of Reckoning. If it's true, and this is just, again, my view, and I've said this before, I don't know if Jeff has heard it, but the mantra for such a long time was when the Fed is being accommodative, adding liquidity the way they were in historically a low interest rate environment, if you're bearish under those circumstances, you're effectively fighting the Federal Reserve. And that's true. David Tepper speaks about that all the time. Well, if it's true on that side of the pendulum, it should be true the flip side that when the Fed is now raising rates and taking liquidity away, if you are bullish under those circumstances, you're effectively fighting the Fed. So that's the way I look at it. But right now, it doesn't seem to matter because the market's seemingly on this one-way trip. I just don't think, to Dan's point, we've had our day of reckoning at all. 
I guess another way I think about it is I'll throw out a tune for you. How about Dazed and Confused from Led Zeppelin? Yeah, my man. What were we doing last summer and fall? I tweeted out on March 10th a video interview with Elizabeth Warren from last summer where the journalist from, I think it was Bloomberg, asked her, are you worried about inflation? She says, no. It's a red herring created by the Republicans. It's not an issue. It's something we can deal with. And then, of course, we went into the fall and there was Build Back Better. We were trying to get that passed. People couldn't really admit we had an inflation problem coming. But literally, six to nine months later, we have the worst inflation we've had in decades. What were policymakers and the Fed thinking last summer to get us to where we are today? My concern is, do we even have people with the intellectual know-how to tackle the problems we've got right now as an economy? And when I think about that and I say, okay, maybe not, maybe we go into recession back half of this year. What I look at when I look at my portfolio is, are these names I want to own a year from now, if they're at or below their price they're at right now? Because that's where we could be. I may not get 20, 30% gains in these names. I might just be sitting on them for a year with no gain, or they might go down. I think it was Memphis Mini, if memory serves, wrote a song in the early 1930s called When the Levy Breaks, of course, made famous by the aforementioned Led Zeppelin. And If it keeps on raining in terms of what you're talking about, these Fed officials, by the way, you say that rhetorically, I think I'm with you. I don't think they have an effing clue as to what's going on. They read textbooks. I can read a textbook, but they have no idea what happens in practice. And here, I'll throw this one at you, Jeff. We effectively, as citizens of this country, and to a certain extent, citizens of the world, because of the effect that this central bank can have, We have to put our faith in mostly predominantly men. So I want to say that in their judgment, I think we would agree on that. Well, for a few of these guys, they didn't have the judgment not to be trading securities, equities, sitting in the perch that they sit in. Now, I understand it was legal. They did nothing wrong under the bylaws of the Federal Reserve. But if you think about it, if I were a Fed governor, I would say to myself, you know what, G-Swiz? Although I'm allowed to do it, it's probably not the best optics of me trading municipal bonds or government securities or treasuries or individual stocks. I'm allowed to do it, but you know what? It's not going to pass the sniff test. I'm not the brightest bulb in the fixture, but I would have known that. Yet the people that we have to trust the judgment and didn't have the good judgment to figure that out. So if they can't understand that, why should we trust them with anything? And then we got the whammy this week of this potential new tax policy. I don't have a problem with the idea that folks who are really wealthy in our country should pay more in taxes. But if you peel back the onion on what they're trying to do is to get people to pay tax on illiquid gains, one of the reasons our country is the economic engine of the world and the envy of the world, there's a great book called Sapiens. I don't know if you guys have read it, but one of the things they talked about in the book is how the concept of an LLC was incredibly productive for the economy because it essentially could take some of the personal risk out of becoming a business owner. Well, one of the things that is fundamental to our economy is credit and debt. Most other economies in the world do not have nearly as much flexibility in the way that a business owner or just an individual can leverage credit and debt. If you start taxing debt associated with value that you've created, so I'm a business owner most business owners will refinance a building they own and use that money to hire people and grow their business. If you start taking out the incentive to do that, you're not just trying to tax Zuckerberg at a higher tax rate. You are fundamentally messing with the way our economy works. And that's what I worry about. And I don't think the AOC, Warren, Bernie wing of the party, and by the way, I don't think whatever the extremists on the right understand this either, 
But where are the folks in the middle that actually understand all of this and can help us put some coherent policy forward that doesn't screw up the economic engine of our country? That was really concerning to me to see that. I don't disagree. You're not going to get any arguments here on this podcast, but I don't think the likelihood of that policy coming into play is particularly great. I think it's a good debate because it's probably how we move closer to the middle. But let's bring this back to stocks, Jeff, because there was a tweet a couple weeks ago. I think it was about mid-March. It was DM. That guy means direct message. That's what the kids do when they're not doing it to the world. I guess someone was asking you over DM, what are your largest positions? And then you said, top 10 in descending order. These are not GGV names. This is really interesting. You've already talked about CrowdStrike. I'm leaving the top name off the list, okay? You've already talked about CrowdStrike, Amazon, whatever SMAR is. Smartsheet. Snowflake, GitLab, Adyen, Square, DLO. I don't know what the hell that is. What's DLO? DLocal. It's a fintech business. Okay. And then Google. All right. The top name, Guy Adami, this is going to make you very happy. This has been one of Guy's final trades on Fast Money for the last few years, dozens of times. The ticker guy is BX. How does a prominent VC like you, ex-tech operator, you focus what? On A, B, and C round investing in tech. Your largest position is Blackstone. Talk to us about that. I am good friends with a number of folks at Blackstone and Goldman and Toma Bravo and TPG and What I came to realize about 10 years ago is these folks are incredible at not only investing, but also raising capital in good times and bad times. And I started buying Blackstone when it was in the 20s, and I believe it was paying like a 7% dividend. And I just said, A, they're the smartest people in the world. They've got access to tons of capital in good times and bad times. But B, they also really like the dividend. And I want to be partners with people who like getting paid a dividend. And that's been a good bet. And so that's one that I've just reinvest the dividends. I set it and forget it. And I keep buying more whenever it dips. It went down to 100 a few months ago and I bought some more. And I love it as a little bit of a hedge on my growth tech portfolio. And by the way, I also own KKR and Goldman. I bought KKR and Goldman in March of 20 when COVID hit because I thought that they would find ways to deploy capital and make money when the market rebounded. But it's been a good bet. It's one that I recommend to a lot of folks if you want exposure to financials. And frankly, a lot of folks, I have 95% of my network tied up in GGV Capital. So I am very long venture capital and growth tech. Where can I go to find other categories where I can still get growth, invest with smart people and make money? And that's been a good bet. You did it without even realizing you did it. You threw another Zeppelin song in there. By the way, Good Times, Bad Times, first song, first side, first album. Never has a better song been the leadoff song for a group. I digress. I'll say this. I agree with you on Blackstone. Dan yelled at me years ago. We were talking about banks, and I mentioned Blackstone. That's not a bank. I'm like, all right, you know what? They're under the subset of financials. But why I mentioned it was you think about all the businesses that they're in, and you think about the landscape of what's going on in the world. Everything lined up for exactly what's been going on over the last six to nine months, and they find themselves, well, this is just my opinion, but I think they have a three- to five-year head start on the rest of their rivals. So this is a stock I think you can absolutely own. You buy on any self, which you did when it traded down to 103 or so recently. And I think this stock is earmarked for north of $200. So well done by you, Dan. See, you didn't believe it when I said it, but when Jeff Richards says it's, oh, my God, Blackstone's the greatest company ever. 
Jeff, what are some of the things, I know one of your portfolio companies, Electric AI, they just raised at a billion dollar valuation. So I think that was an interesting headline. I know Ryan Dennehy, friend of yours and friend of mine, and really a great operator. And it seems like he's executing really well. That whole team is executing well. They're raising money, which is validating the strategy. What are some of the things that you're learning from some of your portfolio companies that you're able to extrapolate that can't all be great? There must be some tougher stories going on. Give us some stuff that public investors might find pretty interesting interesting that is not going to be on our radar right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, first of all, Ryan's just an amazing founder. This is third company. So we love repeat founders because they've already burnt their hand on the stove a few times. There was a company that I came very close to investing in in 2009 called Ring Central, stock symbols RNG, at sub $100 million valuation. We ended up not investing, but the company went on to be, today it's worth $12 billion at its peak. About a year and a half ago, it was about three times that. So $35 billion at its peak, but now $12 billion, but still way up from where we would have invested. And the thing that we got wrong there was in many situations, we, like other investors, overthink it. If you said, hey, I'm going to create a business that's going to sell cloud-based phone systems to small business, kind of an obvious opportunity. People were going to start replacing their desktop phones but we said, oh gosh, what about AT&T? What about Cisco? What about Polycom, this competitive landscape? And Vlad went off and just grew that business at 30, 35% a year for the next decade and turned it into a $15, $20 billion company. When the markets are as big as they are and you have a tailwind shift happening in these categories, sometimes you just don't need to overthink it. I would put some of the names that I own that are in my top 10 that you mentioned there. One of them is this company called Smartsheet, SMAR, low-code, no-code software, next generation of applications that every major corporation in the world is buying, huge tailwind. You've got Asana in that category and Monday as well, and I own all three of them because I believe that over time, corporations are going to shift to this model of buying and deploying software. Do I know what the growth rate is going to be this year for any of those or what the NRR is going to go up or down? I'm not in the business trying to forecast that, but I know the tailwind for those companies is massive, just like it is for Snowflake, HashiCorp, Confluent, GitLab. Same reason I own Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, primarily because of their cloud businesses. So the biggest lesson that we have learned over a very long period of time is when you find a great founder in a big market with a tailwind and a disruptive idea, don't overthink it. We've missed so many great companies because we overthought it. And somebody said, what about this? Or what about this? And what about that? And at the end of the day, think of companies like Airbnb or DoorDash or Uber that are incredibly difficult businesses to build and really took exceptional lights out founders. With a different founder in each of those companies, they don't get to where they are today. And you've seen that as number two or number three in their space didn't achieve nearly the market cap that they did. And so I'll use Snowflake as an example where... I hear people criticize Snowflake, oh, it's overvalued at whatever it's at today, probably 35, 40 times sales. But what if I told you that it's the fastest growing software company in history? It has arguably the best tech CEO of our generation. It has the greatest tech CFO of our generation. It has almost unlimited demand from its customers. It has net dollar retention that is the highest anyone has ever seen in enterprise software. And oh, by the way, it's in a category that is going to expand for the next decade at almost an exponential rate you'd say, well, gosh, I probably shouldn't overthink it. I need to own that. And yet you'd be amazed how many people overthink that and don't own it. And Brad Gerstner laid out on CNBC the other day, I think he made the point. He said, look, if we get no multiple expansion in Snowflake, we think it triples from here in three years. So I think those are the kind of asymmetric insights that we get because we're in the space, we talk to the customers, we see the adoption happening, and we're able to remove our day-to-day, don't overthink the analyst report. 
I don't know what Goldman's price target is on Blackstone, but I know I'm going to own it for the next 10 years. And I think it's a great lesson for your average investor to sit back and say, of the companies that have gotten beaten down in the last six to 12 months, which of these do I think have great long-term prospects? And the three categories that I tweet about a lot, cloud infrastructure, digital payments, and low-code, no-code. I believe the tailwinds in all three of those are enormous. And if you pick the right companies, you're going to make a lot of money. You watch sports. Steph Curry gets the ball. He doesn't overthink it. If he's open, he shoots. Aaron Rodgers, he knows what he's looking at. He throws the ball. It's the guys that double clutch in any sport are the guys that get themselves in trouble. So to your point about overthinking, I'm guilty of that all the time. But you mentioned something. I mentioned your Twitter game, and I'll go back a few days. And this is interesting. My question is going to be, is this a leading indicator or a lagging indicator, or is it just something bookmark? Jeff Richards, I get a weekly unicorn list email of secondary shares available in notable companies. On October 4th, there were 32. Today, there are 103 names, probably nothing. Now, here's where it gets me thinking. For those who aren't in the private markets, an increase in people selling secondary in highly valued companies is generally a negative signal. So I guess my question again is, lagging indicator or is this a leading indicator what it could mean for the public markets. Well, it's funny. I got the email today and we're up to 110 on that list. So it's continuing to go up. The reason it's such an interesting signal is because when the market is hot and employees in these companies believe that the value of the company is increasing, nobody wants to sell their shares. And so it wasn't a surprise to me at all that you have a 50, 60, 70% decline in the public comps for a lot of these private companies. There are enough smart former employees saying, wait a minute, I got to get out of this position before it goes down further. And I never really had a ton of confidence in the management team or what have you. So we're in the early days of a shakeout in the private side. You're going to see some very high profile companies that have raised money at very high valuations that are either going to have to fold their hand and go out of business in the next six months, or they'll be acquired and you'll see purchase price not disclosed, which is always a signal that it was pretty low. But yeah, there's a big reckoning happening in the private markets. And I would say it started happening in November, December. October, November, I think is when we first started to have a lot of folks say, gosh, this market decline isn't a blip. This is real. And I think it was clear that inflation was real. And we all figured out the Fed was going to have to raise rates. So that's been happening. You're going to see that happen. And I think what you're going to see is the old flight to quality. So you take a company like Ryan's company, he actually announced in the article covering it today in TechCrunch, he put out his numbers. And if you do the math on his numbers, he says he's going to clear 70 million of ARR this year. If you assume he's growing at 100%, that means you might do 140, 150 next year. Well, at a billion dollar valuation, he's sub 10x next year's ARR mark. That's not a crazy valuation. And I think that's going to be a wake up call for a lot of founders that are sitting at 30, 40, 50, 60 to say, wait a minute, if this guy's one of the smartest founders in enterprise software and he's rating at 10x next year's number, I got to adjust my expectations and go into this fundraise with a little bit more rational approach. And the thing that we try to coach founders and CEOs on is if you're a public CEO, you've already dealt with this. You don't think the guys whose stock are down 30, 40, 50, 60% are pissed off. Yeah, they're pissed off, but they're not arguing with it. They're saying it is what it is. And in the private markets, we have this disconnect where we can believe that we're disconnected from reality and we can set our own valuation. It's just not how the world works. And so the best founders we work with have already gone through that moment of grief. They've reset expectations. They're raising capital on new terms, and they're just going to build a company for the next decade and not worry about it. 
All right. Last question, Jeff, before we get out of here, and we hope you will come back to OK Computer and on the tape because we love chatting with you here, man. But on February 4th, last time you were on with Guy and me, you talked about the biggest dislocation that you were seeing as far as technology was primarily in fintech and some of those valuations that just got absolutely schmeistered there. Square was trading at 108. Today, as we're talking, is trading at 148. It traded as high as 290. So the stock has gone from, I think, the mid-90s to about 150 but it's still down from 290 here. So good call on your part over a couple months. That's one healthy little return there. But my question, I guess, is more if the markets are going to get back on their footing and start to go higher, it's going to be those mega cap tech names again. We've already talked a little bit about Amazon and Google, and we really haven't talked about Apple and Microsoft, but they're really driving the train. Does that continued concentration? If the NASDAQ goes back to new highs, a lot of those stocks that are still down 50% are probably going to be banging in and around these levels. They're not going back to their highs anytime soon. So my question is, does it concern you that about five, six, seven names are still making up 25, 30% of the S&P 500 and nearly 50% of the NASDAQ 100? It does. Yeah. I think it speaks to a bigger, broader issue we have as a country, which is Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft are more dominant in controlling distribution than they've ever been. And I really don't have the answer here because I don't want to see regulation that curbs innovation. But if you think about what Apple does with the App Store, it is very hard for an emerging company to get any meaningful traction. And what you see is whether it's music or video or location, when something takes off, they often launch their own version of it and you're dead. So somehow we've got to figure out an answer on how to get distribution to the end users because really between Android and Apple, they really control that. Facebook controls the eyeballs. It's something we have to figure out as a country, but I think it's reflected in the market cap to your point. And then back to your question about emerging market fintech companies like Square, it's at 148 right now. And in March of 2020, it was at 38. And if you bought Square in the IPO, it was all the way down around $10, $15. So you've made a lot of money as a Square shareholder. And I am a shareholder. And I'm now looking for other versions of Square around the world. I own Adyen. I own Delo. Think of those as businesses with similar opportunities in emerging markets. So what I love to do and what we love to do as a global investment firm, when we find a trend or an idea that's worked in one market, let's go bet on that trend or that idea in other markets and find the leaders in those other markets. And so we were asking earlier about Delo. I mean, Delo today is a about a $9 billion market cap company. But to your point, March 14th, it bumped down to $23. It's back up at 33 And I think what you're seeing is there is a floor where people who are doing the work are seeing these companies bounce down to these levels and saying, gosh, I could make 10 to 15 times my money from here. I may be catching a falling knife. It may be going lower than 24, but the upside is so great in these categories that I'm willing to take it over and longer story, but we could go into the Toma Bravo acquisition mana plan at 13.9 times next year sales. The smartest software investor in the world just decided it was worth paying over 13 times next year's revenue for a a financial software company, that tells you a lot. And I think there's a floor out there that we're starting to bump around for some of these companies. Jeff, well, I got to tell you something. This investment stuff doesn't work out for you. The Knicks need a two guard next year. And I think you're the right man for the job. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, Jeff. Thanks, man. I hope you come back here. OK Computer on the tape is always a spot for you on our conversation. Listen, when we come back, co-host Katie Stanton from Moxie Ventures, and we have a special guest, Jomira Herrera from Reach Capital. So stick around. 
Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to Current.com slash OK. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Dan, you're about 10 months into the Road Body program. You look great. It looks to be maintenance now. Congratulations. Give us an update. Yeah, well, I feel great too. So when I think about what I set out to do, I was looking to take about 15% of my body weight off through the Road Body program, and I've done that now. So now it is about maintenance. It is about nutrition. It is about exercise. It's about better sleep and really better habits here. So I can do this all in the app on the Road Body program here. And I'm really looking forward to actually taking these new behaviors into 2024 because I am feeling a lot better. Well, it's clearly working, Dan, and congratulations. And folks, if you're interested in learning more, go to road.co slash okay. You'll pay just $99 for the first month and $145 per month thereafter. If prescribed, medication cost is separate. That's row.co slash OKAY. Jomira Herrera is currently a partner at Reach Capital since May of 2021. She started her career as an operator at ad tech startup Bloomboard and eventually started a career in venture capital, first in Emerson Collective Lorraine Powell Jobs family office. Before Reach Capital, she was at Cowboy Ventures from 2019 to 2021, where she spent a lot of her time working with consumer internet and marketplace companies. All right, here we are. Okay, computer. Katie Stanton, you're over there in Boulder. We have Jomira Herrera. Thank you for joining us on Okay Computer Podcast. You are in Orlando, Florida, it sounds like. That's right. Yep, in the Sunshine State. And Jamira, you are originally from Orlando, but had been in the Bay Area and ricocheted back to Orlando. So how is that going? Yes, it's going amazing so far. So I went to the Bay Area and lived there for about 10 years. And then during the pandemic, I think like a lot of people took a step back and was like, why am I so far away from family? And why do I live in a place that I will probably never afford a house in? And so came and spent a few months in Orlando with family and just fell back in love with the city that I grew up in. So recently bought a place here and as you can see, it's slowly moving in. It is taking some time, but it's been great. It is certainly no tech or venture ecosystem, which is a blessing and a curse all at the same time. You don't have people asking you at dinner parties what companies you're in and what are your markups and if you're crushing it, but you also don't have a ton of people that understand what you do. The closest example that I give them is Shark Tank, but even then I don't totally love being affiliated with that. But overall, it's really been great. And note for the audience is that we can actually see Jamira's house and it is empty and there's no furniture. So maybe we should send you some furniture. <laughs> I've known Jamira for three plus years or so. I'm excited to talk to you about a couple of things. For sure, Web3, investing, Florida. But first off, I want to know more about your family. I'm kind of obsessed with your family. You have the most beautiful family and you're the first member of your family to go to college. And you had this tweet about between you and your sister, you have four Stanford degrees and two first 
gen college students, which is really incredible. So I want to know more about your family. Can you just maybe spend a few minutes telling us about your family? For sure. My family was all born in Puerto Rico. Me and my sister were the first ones that were born here in Florida. And my parents actually met in high school and have been together ever since. And they had me at the ripe young age of 16. And so I was born to really, really young parents. And as you can imagine, that meant that we grew up together. As they were going through a teenage to adult experience, I was going through like the infant to toddler experience and we were figuring it all out as time went on. And it was both exciting and crazy all at the same time. And I don't regret any part of that. But I will say figuring out and navigating the college experience as the first one in my family to do that was for sure challenging. I never had any aspirations to go to a a top tier college. It was actually one of my best friends who was like, hey, you're the valedictorian of our class. Like, shouldn't you be thinking about another school other than University of Central Florida? And I was like, which one? Just give me a few names. And so I remember her sending me, not the link, because at the time we would all go to Barnes & Noble and look at books that have the schools. (laughs) And I remember her saying Stanford. And I was like, ooh, that looks like a nice country club. Looks like it's Florida, but in a different state. And so I ended up applying and ended up getting in. And That was one of probably the luckiest things that happened to me in a lot of ways. And so I ended up going. And then my younger sister, who's seven years younger than me, followed in the same footsteps and just recently found out, and Kate is referring to this tweet, that she also got into a master's program at Stanford. And so between the two of us, now we have four Stanford degrees and we're both the first in our family to go to college. And I think for me and also for my sister too, those experiences being the first really have impacted how we think about our careers and where we want to spend our time. So last year, my sister actually took a year off to teach at KIPP West Philadelphia, specifically focused on special education classrooms. I got my graduate degree in education and now invest specifically in education and the future of work. And so I think our personal life experiences have definitely impacted what we do today. Jeremiah, Katie and I have gotten to know each other over the last year or so, and I had seen her career. I'd seen her on Twitter. She's pretty good at it. I've heard her on many podcasts, and there's something consistent that I've noticed over the last few years before I got to know her is that she talks about kind of badass women. That's an expression that she says, and I love her mission at Moxie, and I just love a lot of what I've got to know about the sorts of entrepreneurs she wants to back and the missions that they are into. And when I look at your career, and I just read it for our listeners here, and you You have worked with some badass women. Did you gravitate towards that as you were entering BC and investing after you were an operator or just something that happened to be? It's funny. I never actively look to work with badass women. I think maybe I'm just naturally inclined towards that. And I have no doubt that it's probably driven by the fact that I was raised and surrounded by really badass women my whole life, whether it's my mother or my grandmothers, all of them are just incredible women that have been extraordinary inspirations to me. And so even when I was an operator, my manager was a woman. When I joined Emerson, obviously Lorraine was leading the fund. When I joined Cowboy, Aileen was leading the fund. And I don't think I was ever chosen because of that, but I think because these funds were run by badass women, their values really ended up reflecting my own values. And that's what drew me to those funds. So right now, Reach Capital was founded by Jennifer Carolyn and Chantel Garvey. 
both amazing women. And as they have built out the fund from day one, there has always been a focus on building a safe, diverse, inclusive environment and culture. And for me, that's super important. I think if you're going to build a multi-generational fund, you absolutely have to have that as one of the key tenets. And so I can't say that it was intentional, but I think for sure it's absolutely related to what I'm personally drawn to. You have really nailed the organizations where you have worked. So obviously Emerson Collective, where we met, and I was pitching you on investing in Moxie. So thank you very much for that. But Emerson is just an A-plus team of investors. Cowboy Ventures, also an A-plus team. But now Reach, I mean, I look at Reach as an aspirational VC firm. I think Chantal and Jennifer and the whole team, it must be the most diverse team. It must be the most optimistic and mission leaning. And mission is really funny in venture because we are in the for-profit business, but I do believe that profit and purpose can coexist. And I think Reach has done one of the best jobs defining that. And I'm curious, is that one of the reasons why you joined Reach and maybe double clicking on the areas of focus, where you invest, where you like to co-invest? And then we're going to ask you a lot of questions about Web3 because Dan and I are old and maybe have some (laughs) questions and cynicism towards it and want to get your take. I'm always happy to answer those questions. But when it comes to reach, we actually are apparently the number one most diverse fund by some interesting, funny methodology that the information has put together. And I'll take it because I think from the outside looking in and from the inside, it definitely bears to be true. We only have one white partner. We have a black partner. We have two Latinx partners. We're a majority female team. We've done a really intentional job of making sure that the diversity of the team reflects the diversity of the people that we're trying to impact. And so that has been something that absolutely has been intentional as part of our work. In terms of the values and the mission piece, you hit the nail on the head that mission and impact are these scary words that people don't like to say. But we're not an impact firm. We actually want to make great returns. And I've never really understood why people feel this averse reaction to the word impact. There is no investment that you'll ever make in the history of the world that doesn't have some form of impact. It'll be a negative impact. It'll be a positive impact. There is no neutral impact investment. So all investments are kind of impact investments. It's just deciding what way you want to drive that impact. And so I'm not super scared of the word. We very much lean into it. We absolutely know that our investments are going to have some impact in the world and we want to drive it to be gap closing and positive for the people that they're serving and also make incredibly great returns. Our LPs are pension plans and foundations and endowments, just like every other fund. And they have expectations in terms of outcomes, just like any other fund. And they also know and appreciate that impact is one of the metrics that we are going to report on and we're going to share and we're going to track because it's what matters to us. We could all be doing a lot of different other things with our talents, but we get up every day because we love what our companies are doing and what they're focusing on. Think about OutSchool, for example. It's one of the largest ed tech companies in the U.S. at this point from a valuation perspective, but the impact it's having is also huge on families, particularly during the pandemic, when they were looking for opportunities to support their students when they weren't in school and get that social experience. And so there's absolutely a way to marry those two things. 
So in terms of the areas that I focus on, REACH as a whole, we do everything around ed tech and the future of work. I personally get really excited around learning that happens outside of traditional school systems, so consumer learning experiences. I also love everything around economic mobility, so anything that actually connects people to income-generating opportunities. And then, as you mentioned, Web3, (laughs) that is an area that I picked up in the fall of last year. I kind of took a step back and was like, all right, a lot of really smart people that I respect and admire are talking a lot about this space and are jumping into it. And usually when really smart people that you respect and admire are doing something, at the very least, you should dig in and develop a point of view for yourself on whether or not it's something that is exciting and that you believe in. And so that's what I did in the fall of last year. I completely rabbit holed into the space and I came up for air just a few weeks ago and I was like, okay, I now have a point of view on what we're excited about and what we're not excited about. And also here's the realistic place we are in the space. And so I spent a lot of my time also looking at any Web3 companies that intersect with the areas that we already invest in, which is education and the future of work. Well, as Katie just said, Jemira, we're old. Katie's been in tech for a couple of decades and you've seen lots of different trends, right, Katie? And then as an investor over the last few years and launching your own fund, there was probably a different verticals that you could really lean into in a way. And so Katie and I like to say that she's Web3 curious. I certainly am. It's one of the reasons why we are co-hosts of a podcast called OK Computer that really is focused on the intersection of Web2 and Web3 and not only just from an investment standpoint, but how it's disrupted existing businesses that are more entrenched incumbents. And so, Katie, I'm just curious, you've done some deep dives on some stuff as it relates to crypto or Web3 models. How does it feel to see brilliant young investors, ex-operators coming in and really just leading with Web3? I love it. I love seeing people like Jamira and Maria Salamanca and this whole new generation of very smart, very ambitious, curious, diverse, hungry and earnest types of both investors and entrepreneurs just trying to solve the world's biggest problems. And whether that's in climate or ed tech or economic mobility, I think it's great. The industry has been so exclusive and so monotone and not as maybe purpose-driven and looking for really important outcomes. What are the solutions that can help the most amount of people who are suffering? And so I think it's really great. Whatever name we call it, Web3, I think is very promising. I do think it's also very noisy. I've seen a lot of founders who are building hammers and looking for nails. So seeing Jemira out there gets me really fired up. And it was when you posted actually your blog posts and thoughts last November. That was a turning point for me where I started to take it more serious. I'm like, all right, well, Jemira is paying attention. So shall I? Because you're really close to a lot of these founders. And even this week, talk about badass women. Katie Hahn announced a little old solo GP fund of $1.5 billion dollars. That's so much money. And she did it so fast. And I remember when she started to raise and disclosure, I'm an LP and I'm just really proud of Katie. And she's a dear friend. I really wish she had called it Katie Ventures, but that's for another podcast. But another woman raising, I mean, it's historic. And so it's very, very exciting seeing this. Is it too much money? Is there enough money? Are there enough founders chasing really important problems? Where are we in the market, do you think? So I think for a generalist fund, which is what they are, they're Web3 generalists, 
I can't comment on whether or not I think it's too much money or not enough money. I don't spend enough time looking at every single vertical that, you know, folks are investing in. But it's like saying if I had raised a mobile fund at the advent of the app store is 1.5 billion too much money. If I look back in terms of how much was invested in mobile, no, it was probably a small slice of what we ended up investing in a hugely growing ecosystem. And Web3, I would argue, is probably even bigger because this is like truly, truly reinventing some of the fundamental parts across the internet. And so my instinct is it's probably not too much money. And I try to steer away from ever saying that a woman has raised too much money (laughs) because the reality is as a percentage of everything that men have raised, it's still such a small part of the pie. And so my instinct is it's probably not too much money. Now, if you ask me if I raised a $1.5 billion fund just investing in Web3 and the intersection of earning and learning, absolutely, it's too much. In the blog post that I released just a few days ago, the Web3 and education ecosystem, there's really no dominant use case. There's no dominant business model. Super, super nascent. And it's actually the way that you described it. It's like a hammer looking for nails. There are a lot more interesting opportunities on that earning and economic mobility side. But I don't know if I would say that warrants a $1.5 billion fund. And so I will say, I don't think it's too much. It's probably the right amount, especially because a lot of what folks are investing in, to be honest, a lot of where the value is being created in is at the infrastructure layer, which requires a lot of money. It's not cheap to like create infrastructure layer companies. And so you're seeing these companies raising $200, $300 million rounds right off the bat. Now, whether they're raising too much money, I don't know. But if you think about that relative to a $1.5 billion fund, that's not that many checks. And so I think it's probably the right amount of money to raise given where and how they're trying to invest. We'll link to your blog post from the other day, Learning, Earning, and Web 3, Part 2. I think Katie was referring to Part 1 from November, and they're great reads. And you really do, in a very succinct way, lay out why you are focused on two segments, economic mobility, as you just mentioned, and education. And I want to say, we had a guest on our other podcast on the tape in the fall, a guy named Donakin Sue, who's really focused on financial education, financial literacy, and economic mobility. And he is a Super Bowl champ for or your Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's a Central Florida guy. But it's interesting. He's not really focused on Web3 tools to help push forward some of the things he's, he's focused on. And then on OK Computer a couple months ago, we had a couple guys who are actually, one's in the NFL also, and one's a former NFL guy, Sheldon Day and Amir Carlisle, and they are using Web3 tools. They are focused on a DAO structure, learn to earn. So talk to me a little bit about that, because like you say, it's nascent. It's early. A lot of this is going to be trial and error. And that's why VC exists to focus on some of these really interesting people with interesting perspectives trying to solve big problems. Why is that you're focused on learn to earn? I think that's a theme throughout that last post and where we are in this cycle, I guess. Learn to earn is one of the business models that are currently being leveraged in the ecosystem. I actually think it's a misnomer in a lot of ways because one framework that I use to think about Web3 is, is there a Web2 analog for that business model? So when people say learn to earn, I ask, in what cases or in what scenarios do people currently get paid to learn? None. No one really gets paid to learn today. And so then the question is, how do you make the economics work in this model? And for many of the folks that are doing learn-to-earn models today, 
what it is, is really actually more customer acquisition. So take a rabbit hole, for example, which is one of the more prominent learn to earn companies today. You go in, you have a task that you complete. It's a crypto based task. And then you get a crypto reward for completing it. Now that reward is basically just call it customer acquisition costs. The project and protocol is basically just paying a CAC fee and you split that fee between the person that did the task and then rabbit hole as a platform. To call that learning, I think that's kind of a stretch. You're completing a task. And do you learn while completing a task? Sure, absolutely. But what we know about learning, given that half of our team are former educators and instructional designers, is learning by doing a task is just not enough. You're not actually going to maintain that skill. You're not really learning in a context-based setting. And so let's call it for what it is, just ads and marketing and customer acquisition, which is an amazing business, but it's not learning to earn. And so that's why in the article, I point out that the actual learning component in Web3 right now, I think is really nascent. It is more focused on let's build a Web3 company first, and then let's have learning as a secondary thing. Now, it can look completely different a year from now or even six months from now. There's a learning DAO that I'm a part of called Crypto Culture and Society, and it started off as this idea of so many of the content that was out there And the DAOs that were out there were focused on learning the what of Web3. What is Web3? How do I get into Web3? And less of it was focused on the societal implications and the why. And so that's where crypto culture and society started. And they're now on semester two. And so much has changed just from semester one to semester two, a lot of it being community driven. Now they're still creating content. They're still community forums, but now they have elective tracks. They create content for other DAOs. They're actually generating real revenue. And so who knows what it's going to look like in semester three or semester four. It might actually start rivaling more traditional education institution. And then all of a sudden they can maybe make the model work. And so I'm always hesitant to say, we're not there yet. It's too early. It's just right now it's nascent. And I think in the next six to 12 months, we'll learn a lot more. That's super interesting. And I'm curious too, what have been the most inspiring outside of EdTech Web3 communities? And I can start with one that I saw recently that I thought just kind of gelled for me. Is that one of these moments? So it was basically a DAO for drug discovery. And the idea being that When you have a family member or loved one who is very sick and you have these race for the cures and you raise money for these organizations and those organizations in turn will give money to research institutions that will lead with clinical trials and then hopefully come up with some kind of cure or treatment for this particular ailment. And then the drug manufacturers will create something and they're the ones that actually largely benefit economically. And what if people who were donating their blood or their plasma or their money that in your description of things, they're actually getting compensated somehow for those contributions. Maybe you get more and more people to contribute. And once I met this company doing this, I thought, well, now I get it. So I think health tech could have something like this. I'm hopeful climate tech will also have something like this, but curious other different, more modern, innovative use cases that you've seen. And also who are the founders or the companies that you think are great thought leaders that we should follow on Twitter or that we should listen to their podcast, have on this podcast, for example, later on. One area that I'm particularly excited about, and I wouldn't put it in the same ballpark in terms of inspirational as drug discovery. I think that is a huge, huge groundbreaking change. But 
One area that is just so ripe for disruption that I also mentioned in the article is anything related to, let's call it a freelance marketplace or a job marketplace or knowledge network, which is basically these marketplaces of the past, call it DoorDash, Fiverr, Uber, any kind of labor marketplaces in the past. They only live and die by its network participants. You have no drivers, there's no DoorDash, there's no Uber. You have no freelancers, there's no Fiverr, there's no Upwork. And if you don't have demand side, same thing. And yet those network participants are not actually the primary beneficiaries of those platforms increasing in value. The biggest winners in Uber and DoorDash and Fiverr and Upwork were the investors and the founders, and then maybe some early employees. And so that those wins were very economically centralized among a few people that arguably were not the people creating value for the platform. And so in Web3, you start to change that. One company that I'm spending some time with who definitely falls in this category of badass women, her name is Koki. You can follow her on Twitter. I actually don't know where her handle is, but I think Koki.eth is kind of the name. She's building a company called Twally, and let's call it a knowledge network or a freelance marketplace really focused on the boring things like regulation, tax compliance, all the stuff no one wants to talk about, but we all pay a lot of money to figure out. And the big vision there is the people that are actually on the supply side are able to own a part of Twally. And they're reaping the benefits of when Twally grows and becomes a multi-billion dollar company, the people that are actually producing the value for the platform are owning a part of it. And not just the financial outcome. There's always a piece around financial ownership that is super important, but governance. Now in a Web2 world, if a company decides to change their terms, their take rate, whatever it is, you as someone that's on the platform, like you have no right to fight back. Your only option is just to leave, but then you're leaving money on the table, which is not a good option either. I don't know if this is like a kosher example, but like OnlyFans. One day they were like, we're not going to have people that are adult workers on the platform anymore, which is what we all knew it for. And everyone revolted. They were like, what the heck? I built my business on here. I rely on this business. And one day you make a decision that you decide because of some regulatory factor. And all of a sudden I'm at risk of losing my livelihood. That is part of the challenge that Web3 starts to address because there is governance, ownership by the community. And so they actually have a right in creating those rules and how they change. And so those are the things that get me excited, shifting power and economics back to network participants. That I think is really promising and inspiring. That, I guess, is at the core of Web3, and that'll be a battle. I mean, we've spent a lot of time over the last few months talking about it because there's this Twitter holy war going on between who owns Web3. I don't need to tell you about it. And again, it's going to play out in a lot of different fashions. There's going to be a lot of DAOs created that do amazing things, and then there's going to be a lot created that don't need to exist because existing structures make a whole heck of a lot more sense. And we know the cycles. We don't have to get into plenty of threads on Twitter about out where we are, but we're going to see it play out in real time. I'm curious though, you just mentioned some of the boring stuff. What about some of the fun stuff? I went, I checked you out. You are at Jomira underscore Herrera on Twitter, but you are Jomira.eth. And then you have a crypto coven. And I'm going to tell you this, and this may bum you out. That is your PFP. I have crypto covens. What does that say? That some boomery 49 year old bro, Wall Street guy has crypto covens. I did mint a few of them out of the gate. I'm going to tell you this really quickly. And my friend Meltem, who also is a contributor and a co-host on OK Computer, and I said, I got three of them. What do I do with these things? She's like, sell one and buy a crypto dick butt. So I bought a crypto dick butt and I 
I have one of those and I have- Crypto what? I don't even know what that is. Do I want to know? I don't want to know. People love the community and I'm just kind of messing around a little bit, but tell me about crypto covens and why you were attracted to them. And I will just tell you what I was doing. I was literally watching a football game on my couch in the fall and I'm listening to a Twitter spaces. And I want to hear a little bit about your discovery process with some of the social networks with Discord and how you're doing it. But I like listening to it because I'm learning. I'm listening to people like you who've done these deep dives. They're doing the work. They're getting to know people in the community. And I just heard one. I sounded pretty cool. I went, I minted a few of them. And then one of my friends who I trust is like, that's really cool. I don't even know how to use Discord. It's not intuitive or anything like that, but I'm going to follow some people and do some stuff. So I followed some peeps into the covens. I followed Melton into the crypto dick butts. My boy, Packy loved the dick butt move on my part. So talk to me what's interesting to you about some of these fun projects, I guess. I can't even remember what originally got me into crypto covens, but I think it was probably a similar situation. A friend was like, hey, I'm in a minute which you should consider doing it. And then I learned more about the project and started to meet people that were early on in the project. And what I love was the intentionality of wanting to bring in first-time NFT owners, women and people of color, which one of the areas I feel is an existential thing for Web3 is we cannot recreate the same issues that we have done over the last many, many decades. When it comes to new innovations, we have to bring a range of people, a diverse set of people along with us and help them also become early adopters so that they also can get some of the wins that people are making today. And so I love the intentionality in which the community was so focused on how do we make people that are first time NFT owners, how do we make crypto come and be their first? And so for me, just that background really inspired me. And I should let you know that for most NFTs that don't have like an out of world or like some form of utility or application, I'm assuming 99% of them will go to zero. So whenever I buy an NFT in that world, I have to say, well, owning this NFT means so much to me that I don't care if I can never flip it. And so that's how I felt about Crypto Coven. If I never flip it, I never make any money off of it, but I feel good about purchasing it because I actually support what they did for the ecosystem, that is enough for me. And so that's what got me into the project and what got me excited. You know, it's interesting, and we've had this conversation. I've been in financial markets for 25 years. And one of the things that I think is really interesting, I love all the ways that Web3 are allowing people to come into what I think is a newfound financial universe for a lot of people. A lot of artists are being able to monetize their works in ways that they never were before. And I've spent dozens of hours, I'm not lying to you, on these Twitter spaces over the last, let's say, six to nine months in some amazing clubhouses too. We can't forget Clubhouse KD. I was going to say. But one of the things that you realize and you realize this in the stock market, you realize it with everybody who's setting up a rolling fund or this and that, whatever, that sometimes there's just these rushes to what feels like easy money. The way you describe it makes total sense. I don't think there's a lot of people though who see it the way that you do. They see it as a way to make money. And so for me, I spent, I don't know, 500 in ETH to mint those three covens. And then I sold one for three ETH. Somebody paid three ETH for that thing that I actually am not invested in, saying I don't know what's really going on. And then I bought a dick butt for two ETH. So my point is these are financial instruments. And I think that's lost on a lot of people. And everyone can say, oh, it doesn't matter if it goes to zero, but if they all go to zero, 
we're going to have a big problem here in this communities because it's going to turn into these post-apocalyptic extended bear markets that we've seen in the stock market post.com. Katie remembers that very well. Now, the good news is there's going to be some amazing innovation that comes out of it. There's going to be some people who learned amazing lessons and they're going to iterate and they're going to be the next phase of this sort of thing. So I'm just curious how you think about it because some amazing things came out of that crypto winter in 18 and 19. Is that how you're thinking about it a little bit? Yeah. So you bring up a really great point and I totally agree. We're going to see a lot of things go to zero. We're going to see a big bust. I believe that. I also believe you don't throw away baby with the bathwater. There's going to be really amazing things that come out of this frenzy of capital that's going in the ecosystem. If you look at tech cycles throughout history, it always happens this way. A ton of capital is thrown after an ecosystem many to a lot of a pet.com situation where people just add .com on anything. It happens. And then from that, you get incredible, durable, iconic, and legendary companies that come out of it. But there's a lot of people that lose money and it's painful along the way. And so that's why I do think when we're talking about average day consumers, not people that are spending 12 plus hours on Twitter spaces trying to understand the ecosystem. I'm talking about the average consumer that hear from someone, oh, you should buy Bitcoin, you're going to make money. That's the person that I'm talking about. There has to be a much more enhanced educational piece to all of this so that there is some degree of consumer protection that is happening. I'll even tell you, my parents are like, all right, should I buy this Ethereum thing? I found out the other day, one of my mom's biggest holdings on Robinhood, and by the way, she's like not active on Robinhood, but one of her biggest holdings is Dogecoin. And I'm like, who told you to buy this? Please don't ever make a decision like this. Elon Musk told her to buy it on Sarah Live a year ago. I'm like, what compelled you to buy this? And so there has to be a consumer education piece. And I'm always careful because I don't want to infantilize people, but I also don't want to see people like my mom and the average person losing a ton of money because Elon Musk decides to tweet Dogecoin is the thing. We have to be really careful about that. And particularly people that have loud voices and have big platforms need to be even more careful about what they say and what they push on the average person, because $1,000 might not be a lot to us, but it could be a person's entire savings. And so I do feel very strongly about that piece, which is why I'm actually looking for companies that help on that onboarding and education piece too. Literally my last trip to Miami, I was leaving an event and I had an Uber and on the Uber driver's dashboard, he had his Uber app and then he was live trading Dogecoin. So I could see the traction there. I was like, oh my gosh, this is not a really good use of this guy's capital. And I thought it was a fluke and I'm not lying. The very next Uber I had was a Tesla. The Uber driver was driving a Tesla and his license plate said Doge. What is going on in Florida? which is a whole other podcast. A lot of things, Katie. Let's not open up that Pandora's box. Maybe we should end on a positive note, an optimistic note. We'd love to get your take on what makes you optimistic about the future and where crypto is going and how does it help elevate the economic mobility of our moms and of our Uber drivers and of the community who can benefit the most? What makes me optimistic is as many founders as we see that are probably loud on Twitter that are pushing things like Dogecoin or things that we think are pretty ridiculous. There are two, three, maybe 10 times more founders that are actually really taking this seriously and actually wanting to build things that will 
change the ecosystem and the way that we interact with the internet and actually change outcomes for people. And those are the people that I'm hoping and trying and currently talking to every day. And so for me, I tend to be a tech optimist, whether or not that's a good thing, I don't know, but it's how I choose to live my life. And I think there are real people that are trying to change the way that we have historically created and distributed wealth in this country in particular and globally in particular. So that's what gets me optimistic and keeps me excited. But time will tell. Bring me back a year from now and we'll see how things are going. Well, Jermyra, hopefully you'll come back sooner than a year from now. And, you know, I just learned of the work that you're doing through your blog posts, following you on Twitter. And I encourage OK Computer listeners to do the same here. And please come back. This is a great conversation. Katie is an amazing operator, amazing investor. I know that she's mentored so many people over the years. So it's really amazing to have such young, amazing talent come on this podcast. So thank you for joining us. And Katie, thanks for bringing Jermyra. Oh my God, Jamira, thank you for coming. You're amazing. No, thank you for having me. This was awesome. And Katie is the best. Definitely falls on that category of badass women. All right. Well, thank you, Jamira. Thanks, Katie. We'll see you soon. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.